0: Picture this, the date is September the 7th, 2028. Nicola Sturgeon dusts herself down as she waits to walk onto the stage to greet the masses of a newly independent Scotland. In front of the Scottish Parliament, now the only elected decision-making body for the country, the leader of the Scottish National Party will announce her retirement. She has overseen the journey to devolution and now her lifelong mission of Scottish independence has been achieved. But how does Scotland get there? How do its institutions adapt to their familiar and yet completely novel surroundings after three centuries spent as part of a political and economic union? How do you, whether you are in the crowds cheering or at home cursing at the TV screen, fit into an independent Scotland? How do you vote for your new representatives? What currency do you use to buy your weekly shop? And can you still visit your friends across the border? The simple answer is that you and I will not know the correct answers to these questions until it happens, if it happens. But what can we learn about Scotland's potential futures by looking at other countries that have walked this path before? This podcast series will not tell you whether independence is right or wrong for Scotland. More than likely you will already have a view and I am not here to try to change that view. Instead, we will listen to how other countries in Europe and around the world approach their newfound independence and whether we can learn any lessons for Scotland. My name is Conor Matchett, I'm the Scotsman's Deputy Political Editor and welcome to How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices. Borders. Scotland already has one with England, you will likely have driven past it on several of the trunk roads travelling south. The issue of borders, however, which barely caused a ripple during the 2014 independence referendum, is likely to dominate any potential future vote. This is for one reason, and one reason only. Brexit. Even during the referendum for this political project, one which has defined the last decade of British politics, the question of borders was barely considered. The oven-ready deal promised by the Prime Minister has resulted in two years of political grievances between Unionists in Northern Ireland, the UK government and the European Union, all due to the Northern Irish Protocol, part of the Brexit deal signed by Boris Johnson and aimed to avoid the need for any hard customs border on the island of Ireland. For Scotland, however, The SNP's policy of rejoining the European Union after independence provides more questions than answers. A simple proposition in terms of borders in 2014, given England's assumed continued membership of the EU, such a policy choice now would lead to the question of how an EU member Scotland could trade with a post-Brexit UK. The SNP argues there will be no hard border between the two countries after independence, while Unionists point to the situation in Northern Ireland as a cautionary tale. What is true is that an independent Scotland, should it choose to diverge in its economic regulations from the United Kingdom, would have to tackle the question of borders at some point. Before we come to Scotland, however, let us examine another country who gained independence. Montenegro is one of only a handful of countries worldwide who democratically and without political dispute ...split from a political and economic union following a referendum vote. In 2006, three years after the state of Serbia and Montenegro... ...formerly the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia... ...passed legislation to provide a route to independence... Montenegrins voted 55.5% to 44.5% in favour of independence. In a day, the union between the two federal republics had been broken and Montenegro's journey as an independent nation began. Milena Besic is the director of the Centre for Democracy and Human Rights, based in the Montenegrin capital of Podgorica. She describes why it was such an important moment for the country.
1: It was very, very important to the majority of citizens of Montenegro that we finally got the independence and uh, you will hear people that they're not saying that we uh, gained the independence but that we regain uh, the independence since that's the true montenegro was for centuries independent country even an independent and recognized kingdom uh, before it was 100 years ago assimilated in the kingdom of Yugoslavia between two wars, the First and Second World War. It was very important after a Socialistic Yugoslavia, a Socialistic Federation of Yugoslavia felt apart in war at the beginning of the 90s. Montenegro was the only country that sticked formally with uh, Serbia in that Union, which was not very functional. And simply the process of uh, regaining independence was like the final cut in that process of dividing all the republics uh, that were uh, jointly together in one big Yugoslavia. So it, it was the only on the territory of the ex Yugoslavia separation that happened on democratic way, on referendum. There was no conflict.
0: What changed after Montenegro became independent? Did much change for the man on the street? And what about the post-independent political situation?
1: Simply, not so many things changed because we already were in that kind of federation that seemed like confederation. And Montenegro, uh, for example, made some restrictions even before in terms of of market with Serbia, because in 2002 uh, or 2001, Montenegro entered into Eurozone. So we started uh, using the currency of Euro, even when we were in the same country with Serbia. Uh, and they are still uh, having dinners, Serbian dinners. And um, it was uh, very complicated to make trade uh, between two countries. Not everything was so good uh, regulated. And um, basically, uh, there were always uh, two political, main dominant political streams within Montenegro. One, uh, which is pro-Serbian, and one... Which is of course pro-independent. In these two uh, three, two basic and main streams, uh, besides the that determination towards Serbia, there were other issues that were characterizing those two streams. One was those political parties who were for uh, independence of Montenegro were also pro-European and pro-Western oriented, while those streams who were uh, pro-Serbian, there were also more pro-Russian and more conservative. So these two mainstreams on these days are, uh, let's say, having their, I believe, peak in that uh, we are so uh, deeply divided country, deeply divided society upon all each possible issue that might occur. There's no question in Montenegro (laughs) that that you don't have two strongly divided streams. And this is something which is really a threat towards the democracy and it's really tricky. Overcoming overcoming uh, those uh, uh, differences uh, seems to be the main challenge uh, for Montenegro.
0: We'll hear more about Montenegro across this series, but for now let us focus on borders. Between Montenegro and Serbia, people can cross freely with just an ID, post-independence. There are, however, several official border crossings dotted along the border, while crossing it elsewhere is also permitted, provided the correct permission is gained from officials. In the Balkans more broadly, there are several ongoing border disputes between the states in the region. Montenegro, however, does not have that problem. Instead, it faces a challenge of how to work with its neighbours while continuing to work towards joining the European Union.
1: When it comes to transport of goods, uh, there are certain rules and this is something which is like right now the main topic, whether Montenegro will join the initiative of open Balkans uh, to even remove uh, uh, those barriers that still exist. Uh, but it's again another topic, but really it is not uh, between Serbia and Montenegro. We don't have uh, like uh, open issues. Uh, this is also in terms of uh, uh, Montenegrin access to European Union. We are the only Western Balkan countries that don't have open issues in terms of borders with neighbors, with the exception of Croatia. But when you come, when it comes to the borders and uh, everyday life. I believe that European Union, uh, if the whole Western Balkan one day uh, is integrated within the European Union, it will really make our life easier in many different ways. But the the fact that not all the countries having the same uh, success and the level for, let's say, negotiation process and integration process, especially political decisions of uh, countries, I am let's say, each year, less and less optimistic.
0: This desire to become integrated with Europe is mirrored in Scotland, albeit from a different starting point. It is also the central uncertainty for post-independent Scotland's territorial relationship with England and the rest of the United Kingdom. Nicola McEwan is Professor of Territorial Politics at the University of Edinburgh and the co-director of the Centre on Constitutional Change. Co-author of one of the most recent papers on Scotland's post-independence, post-Brexit borders, she provides insight on why Scotland's tricky position is unique.
2: It's very difficult to find precedents. First of all, we don't have a parallel example of a country as economically developed, as politically developed, an advanced democratic state, if, if you like. We don't have an example of that kind of nation becoming independent. Um, we have plenty of examples of of some who have tried, but none yet that have transitioned to independence. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, that the ambitions... For independence from the SNP leadership at least, is that an independent Scotland would be a member of the European Union. And it's that ambition, independence within the European Union, which raises interesting and complex issues uh, for the border and border management. I mean, any independent country anywhere in the world is responsible for managing its borders. This is just a, a basic task of of independence it's important that a country knows what's crossing its border knows that it meets the criteria for crossing the border and can enforce um or put, put enforcements in place um to make sure that anything that doesn't meet that criteria can't cross the border and that's intended to sort of prevent smuggling or you know the spread of disease so all sorts of sensible reasons for having a system of border management. And under any scenario, an independent Scotland would sensibly devise a system of border management. Under EU membership, it would have to. It would have to because the border that Scotland shared with what was left of the United Kingdom would not just be their border, it would also be a new external border of the European Union, and that comes with responsibilities.
0: For Professor McEwen, trade is the main border issue facing an independent Scotland, and one that is dependent on the UK's relationship with the EU as much as Scotland's relationship with the rest of the UK. She explains.
2: In terms of the border between Scotland and England, so the the land border, that they share. With a view to an independent Scotland being within the European Union, it will be heavily dependent on where the relationship between the UK and the EU sits at that point. So at the moment, that relationship is governed by the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which allows for tariff-free trade in goods, but is quite a thin agreement. So As anyone involved in exporting will know, if they are exporting from the UK to the EU at the moment, there's a whole lot more paperwork than there ever was before. Um, Not the same with respect to importing, because that agreement hasn't fully been implemented yet on the UK side. So then the UK is not imposing the same checks on goods coming into the UK as the agreement anticipates and as are being applied on those leaving the UK for the EU. So if that agreement was still the agreement that governed the UK-EU relationship, then it would also, by extension, govern the UK-Scotland relationship, because Scotland would be within the European Union. So I think it's mostly about trade. Trade is the issue. Trade in, in goods, the flow of animal and plant products in particular are an issue that require physical checks and documentary checks and that has been quite burdensome for businesses. We've seen some of the issues around trade going into Northern Ireland even though Northern Ireland is part of the UK it is part of the European single market for goods so some of those checks have been in place there too.
0: When thinking about borders, many will instantly consider the possibility of passport controls on the English-Scottish border. That, however, Professor McEwen says, is highly unlikely.
2: What I don't think we are talking about is what many people think of when they think about borders and border crossing, and that's passport controls. I do not think we are, under any scenario, looking at passport checks at the Scottish-English border, because I fully would anticipate that were Scotland to become an independent country, it would, much like Ireland, be part of what's called the Common Travel Area, which is almost like a free movement area for British and Irish citizens across these islands, across the UK and and Ireland, and that entitles people to move freely, entitles British and Irish citizens to move freely throughout that shared area. So I do not think we would be in the scenario of, of requiring border uh, passport controls at the border.
0: The common travel area predates the UK or Ireland joining the European Union, but it is not a legally binding treaty. Instead, it is an agreement that both the UK and Ireland are committed to continuing, and an independent Scotland would almost certainly continue abiding by it. This would make crossing the border at Berwick or Gretna, for the majority of people, exactly the same experience as it is today. But what about trade? How would trade be affected by a new customs border between England and Scotland?
2: It's important to think about what kind of trade that entails, a lot of the trade between Scotland and the rest of the UK is in services, and services are, aren't treated in the same way. There's very limited uh, detail on services in the trade and cooperation agreement, and it might be possible uh, under that scenario for there to be agreements on mutual recognition, for example. So let's say, you know, a service that requires certification in Scotland and separate certification in England, we have some of these now, um, Would the, there might be an agreement between the governments to mutually recognise the qualifications of their particular regulatory bodies to help that kind of trade and services. These kinds of discussions are taking place between the UK and Ireland now, and I think there's a, an awful lot to learn about the challenges and potentially the ways around those challenges that might face an independent Scotland in the future if we look to how the UK and Ireland are managing their relationship. I don't mean specifically in relation to Northern Ireland and the protocol where most of the attention has been, but on the the movement of, of goods and of services between Ireland and the UK. Now, what we also know about goods is that There's around about the same, if not a bit more uh, in terms of Scotland's goods trade is with the European Union rather than with the rest of the United Kingdom. So presumably were Scotland to become a member of the European Union, then that trade in goods, that export in goods and imports in goods should become a little bit easier than it is now and within the context of Brexit. But of course, it would become more difficult, more challenging, perhaps in terms of goods trade with the rest of the United Kingdom, under the terms of that trade at the moment, which is all set out in the Trade and
0: Cooperation Agreement. What about day-to-day crossing of the border, for those who live in the borderlands? Will people no longer be able to go to Tesco in England and live in Scotland? Well, it won't be that different, Professor McEwen explains.
2: will be much greater and more apparent for, for businesses who are trading across the border and moving across the border with their goods. And I think under the current scenario, there would have to be a physical infrastructure to check those goods at border crossing points. I really don't anticipate the same kind of checks being required for somebody who's crossing the border to go to Tesco or whatever whatever it happens to be and here's where i think there's an interesting picture that emerges from what the rules say and how they're implemented and crucially how they're enforced so for example under eu rules there shouldn't currently be free movement for pets for your animals your 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 pet dog if you're going from um belfast to dublin or 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 even crossing the border within the border communities. In principle, the rules say that you shouldn't do that because the common travel area is for people. It's not a common travel area for pets. And there are strict rules about pet pet passports and, and, and so on. But has that stopped people taking their dogs for a walk across the border? I think it's highly unlikely. And there's no way that that sort of thing can be Enforced, So that raises interesting questions about when is a border actually a border? Is it when it's set down in the rules or is it when it's capable of being enforced?
0: A border would not be new, but the border management would be.
2: There already is a border between England and Scotland. There is a difference in regulations on either side of that border. There is a difference on rights. There is a difference on responsibilities. But there's no question that under the context of independence, and in particular independence within the European Union, you would have to have a system of border management that required much more oversight of what was crossing the border and a system where you could check whether they were entitled to cross the border. And setting up a system like that can only really be done on one side alone. There would have to be cooperation. So ironically, in a sense, you might have a lot closer cooperation between Scotland and the authorities in England in managing the border under an independent scenario than you have Right now, take the transport authorities, for example, at the moment, Transport Transport Scotland's remit stops at the border and Transport England, or I think it's called National Highways now, its remit stops at the border on the other side. And they don't really have an awful lot of purpose in working together. Well, they would much more so under the context of independence.
0: But will Scotland get special treatment, as Northern Ireland did, with its protocol following Brexit?
2: So the Northern Ireland protocol clearly came about because all sides in the negotiations were interested and committed to ensuring that Brexit didn't mean new hard physical borders on the island of Ireland. And that was particularly in light of the relatively recent peace settlement and the desire on all sides to protect the Good Friday Agreement on all sides of the negotiations. I don't think we can expect the same sort of treatment for Scotland. Scotland doesn't have the history of conflict that Northern Ireland has. We wouldn't necessarily have a member state championing that kind of special treatment as Ireland did in the case of Brexit negotiations within the EU is as much a deal for Ireland as it was for Northern Ireland as part of the UK. And also the practicalities of managing the border between Scotland and England are not nearly as great as they would be on the island of Ireland, just because of the geography and because of where people live. And there's so many rivers and hills and nature reserves and so on that um, are across that particular border, there's actually relatively few crossing points and a few main trunk roads. So pragmatically, it's easier to envisage a system being put in place for the English-Scottish border for trade than would have been the case on the island of Ireland. So that coupled with the Troubles is one of the reasons why we shouldn't expect the same kind of treatment for an independent Scotland. On the other hand, it's quite clear that in accession negotiations and in negotiations that the European Union conducts with other countries, there are clearly flexibilities that are and can be negotiated. So there's the strict rules that are set out in the treaties, and then there's the practical implementation. And we've seen elsewhere, and there's lots of literature on this, to demonstrate that there can be areas of flexibility. Where I think there's less flexibility is where it concerns the EU internal market. Preserving the integrity of the EU internal market, I think, will be crucial um, for the EU side in any accession negotiations, any membership negotiations that an independent Scotland might enter.
0: The question of the border, therefore, is dependent mostly on what sort of agreement Scotland might have with the European Union. It is the same central uncertainty that has affected countries like Montenegro in their independence and economic development. But, as Professor McEwen told us, the scare stories of queuing at the border point in Berwick to visit family in England, get to work or go shopping should be taken with a significant pinch of salt. But that's not to say it will be simple. Northern Ireland's experience with Brexit shows that creating a new customs border on an island where one part is in the EU and the other outside the single market is a difficult and politically fraught process. Politicians should be clear in exactly what they are promising voters. It is unlikely voters will thank the SNP for years of protracted negotiations and disputes over the nature of what would otherwise be the status quo. Next week on How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices, we discuss how an independent country sets up its own democracy and what options might be available to Scotland. How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices is produced and hosted by me, Connor Matchett, and edited by Kelly Crichton. You can find out more about this series each week in Saturday's edition of The Scotsman and online at scotsman.com.